Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, tracking Zika. Health officials now warning the virus is spreading explosively. Plus, the new link between soy and BPA and what it could mean for women who are trying to get pregnant. And there's even more good news about coffee, the new research debunking a widely held belief about caffeinated beverages. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Topping our news this week, Amy, the World Health Organization says the Zika virus outbreak has now reached, quote, alarming proportions and is spreading explosively in the Americas. The WHO is convening an emergency committee to address the mosquito-borne virus on Monday. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there is active Zika transmission in at least two dozen countries and territories across Latin America and the Caribbean. Zika has been linked to a surge of babies in Brazil being born with abnormally small brains, a condition called microcephaly. Health officials are also investigating reports that Zika is linked to cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, an autoimmune disorder that can cause temporary paralysis. And as public health officials try to respond to the outbreak, scientists are trying to figure out how Zika spread so quickly. The virus first surfaced in Africa in the 1940s and has only rarely been seen in the Americas since then. In fact, there's been little research done into Zika because its symptoms have typically been mild. We spoke to Flaminia Cataruccia, Associate Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School. She says there are several possible reasons why Zika has erupted so quickly. Brazil has a very um, particular climate. At the environmental level, it's very hot and, and humid, and, and this might favor uh, the uh, propagation of uh, the Aedes mosquitoes that transmits the virus. It might also facilitate this, the development of the virus within the mosquito so that the virus might be developing more quickly in, in those mosquitoes and so might spread more rapidly. Also, it is possible that the virus has acquired mutations and that have uh, allowed uh, it to become more pathogenic for, for humans. That's a possibility that we don't know um, enough about yet. Or there's also another hypothesis that uh, human populations in, in Brazil and in neighboring countries uh, might be more susceptible to infections by the virus. Those populations um, are uh, subject to infections by similar viruses, uh, in particular by dengue virus, which is a much more uh, dangerous virus that causes also high mortality. And, um, and the dengue virus is known to affect the human immune system. And so it might be that in people that are affected by dengue, then infections with Zika might be more pathogenic. There is no vaccine for Zika virus, and Cataruccia says that developing one could take years and millions of dollars. That's why the CDC has warned pregnant women not to travel to areas with active Zika transmission. And the government of El Salvador took the dramatic step of urging women not to get pregnant. For the latest information on the virus and its spread, visit cdc.gov Zika. The government panel is now recommending that women be screened for depression during pregnancy and after giving birth. The new guidelines from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force come amid growing concern that maternal mental illness is more common than previously thought. Experts tell the New York Times that an estimated one in seven mothers will face postpartum depression. Health officials say expanded screenings will also help children who can be affected by untreated mood disorders in their mothers. These depression screenings would be covered under the Affordable Care Act.
women trying to conceive or undergoing fertility treatments may want to consider adding more soy to their diets. Noah, a new study from researchers at the Harvard Chan School suggests that regularly eating soy may protect women undergoing infertility treatments from poor success rates linked with bisphenol A, or BPA, a commonly used chemical often found in plastic containers or bottles and can linings. Amy, more than 96% of Americans have BPA in their bodies, and it has been shown to negatively affect fertility by disrupting hormones. But researchers say that soy appears to block BPA's influence on the body. Previous studies identified this connection in mice, but the Harvard Chan study is the first to find this connection in humans. The researchers looked at data from 239 women undergoing in vitro fertilization and compared pregnancy rates, the levels of BPA in their urine, and how much soy they ate. They found that among women who did not consume soy, higher urinary BPA levels were associated with lower chances of embryo implantation, fewer pregnancies advancing to the point where the fetus could be seen on an ultrasound, and fewer live births. And Amy, because the study is the first of its kind, lead author Jorge Chavado, associate professor of nutrition and epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School, says that more research is needed. He said it will be important to replicate these results and also identify how much soy is needed to make a difference. The soy supplement on their own, regardless of, what's, of what may or may not be happening when it's interaction with BPA, it has been shown that it has some benefit, specifically for women undergoing infertility treatment. The question is not so much uh, at this moment, does it help, but how much do you need to take for it to be helpful? Chavado pointed out that limiting BPA exposure is also important. That means favoring fresh or frozen vegetables instead of canned products and not handling thermal receipts, the kind used in supermarkets, gas stations, and ATMs. Noah, the 2016 presidential campaign is heating up as we count down to the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, both only days away. And Amy, a new poll is showing that the Affordable Care Act is not high on the list of priorities for voters. According to the survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation, just 23% of voters said the ACA would be a, quote, extremely important issue to them. The ACA, also known as Obamacare, ranked far below issues such as terrorism and the economy. 28% of voters did say the cost of their personal health care or insurance plan would be extremely important to them. What is clear, however, is that the 2016 election will have a major impact on the future of the Affordable Care Act. Early in January, President Obama vetoed legislation that would have repealed the ACA. And John McDonough, professor of public health practice at the Harvard Chan School, says that the law could face more challenges moving forward. If Republicans win the White House and hold on to the Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, then I believe there will be some significant and substantial dismantling of major parts of the law, including coverage, which could lead to a loss of insurance coverage for potentially tens of millions of Americans. The Congressional Budget Office said that the recently passed legislation that the Republican Congress sent to the President Obama that he vetoed would have taken coverage away from 22 million Americans. So big consequences. If Democrats hold on to the White House and or the U.S. Senate, then I believe they will be able to effectively block that kind of substantial dismantling. A reminder, January 31st is your last chance to get health insurance in 2016 through the Affordable Care Act, unless you qualify for a special enrollment period due to a loss of health coverage or a life event, such as a change in family status due to marriage or the birth of a child.
It's time to shift the national conversation on guns from gun control to gun health. That was the message from experts during a webcast hosted by the Forum at the Harvard Chan School. During the hour-long discussion, experts explored how a public health perspective could be used to reduce gun violence. David Hemingway and Felton Earls, both of the Harvard Chan School, shared sobering statistics about guns, pointing out that 300 people are shot in the U.S. each day, and that 61% of gun deaths in the country are suicides. Hemingway, who is director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, said that an important part of a public health approach is understanding the problem. He said more research must be done, but that it'll be difficult until Congress lifts its ban on the study of gun violence by government agencies. Unfortunately, in the gun area, there's been withholding of data. We haven't been able to collect data. When data are collected, it hasn't been provided to researchers. There's been uh, roadblocks to it. And then there's been virtually no money for, for research. I always say that public health is underfunded relative to medicine, and within public health, uh, injury and violence prevention is particularly underfunded, and within injury and violence, guns are, are incredibly underfunded. The CDC, for the last 20 years, CDC personnel have been afraid to say the word guns in public meetings. It's gotten to such an incredible state. There's no, no money at all from CDC. There's incredibly little from uh, the Institute of Justice or the uh, NIH. And foundations have not just stepped up. And a, a small number of foundations have done something, but most major foundations are also afraid uh, to give money in this area is because of the pushback. And so we're in an incredible situation where we even, if we're trying to do harm reduction work and we really don't know nearly as much as we should and we really don't have the data, and it's an incredible situation. Panelists did point out that there have been successful gun control efforts at the state and local level. Mike McLively, staff attorney for the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, said that since the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting, there have been 125 significant gun safety reforms enacted in 41 different states, including universal background checks for those purchasing firearms and bans on large-capacity ammunition magazines. McLively says many courts have ruled that such laws do not violate the Second Amendment. To watch the full webcast, visit theforum.sph.harvard.edu. And finally, this episode, Amy, we have some more good news to share about coffee. Ah, and my coffee is right here, so I'm even more excited about the story than usual. NOAA researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, found that drinking coffee and tea or eating chocolate does not appear to cause heart palpitations, heart fluttering, or other out-of-sync heartbeat patterns. For the study, scientists looked at 1,400 people with an average age of 72 who were taking part in a larger heart study. Almost 60% said they drank or ate some sort of caffeinated product every day. Researchers measured any instances of heart disturbances and tell NBC News that they found no difference, no matter how much coffee, tea, or chocolate people had. And Amy, we have covered the benefits of coffee extensively on this podcast. If you needed a reminder, research has shown that moderate coffee consumption, around three to five cups a day, we're talking black coffee here, may help people live longer by lowering the risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Monomiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. Just search for Harvard Chan This Week in Health or find it on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth. And as always, you can visit hsph.harvard.edu to stay up to date on the latest health news.